Listen first to the texts that we'll be looking at for this morning. The gospel text comes from Matthew chapter 5, and I'll be reading verses 17 to 22. Don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. Heaven and earth may disappear, but I promise you that not even a period or a comma will ever disappear from the law. Everything written in it must happen. If you reject even the least important command in the law and teach others to do the same, you will be the least important person in the kingdom of heaven. But if you obey and teach others its commands, you will have an important place in the kingdom. You must obey God's commands better than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law obey them. If you don't, I promise you that you will never get into the kingdom of God. You know that our ancestors were told, do not murder, and a murderer must be brought to trial. But I promise you that if you are angry with someone, you will have to stand trial. If you call someone a fool, you will be taken to court. And if you say that someone is worthless, you will be in the danger of the fires of hell. I read that from the uh, contemporary English version. I forgot to say that. Our epistle lesson is... Um, from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, and reading just verses 1 to 5, although we could, with uh, instruction, read the whole chapter. Christ encourages you, and his love comforts you. God's Spirit unites you, and you are concerned for others. Now, make me completely happy. Live in harmony by showing love for each other, be united in what you think, as if you were only one person. Don't be jealous or proud, but be humble and consider others more important than yourselves. Care about them as much as you care about yourselves and think the same way that Jesus Christ taught. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We live always in Easter time. We're blessed to believe to be living on the resurrection side of the great Christ event. But today, we are deep into the season of Lent, when we're trying to walk with Jesus to Jerusalem and to Golgotha and to the ultimate act of humility. Jesus' supreme act of, of sacrifice to say a final no to the forces of self-centeredness, power and violence which grips humanity and thus providing us a means to be to, of release to be free from that uh, from those very same forces 
if only we do accept the means and live it. This morning, I want to focus on the grace of humility and what it means in, to ministry. It's not a particularly um, popular topic. <laughs> but before I begin my reflection, I need to emphasize that I am speaking as much to myself as I am to any one of you. At heart, I'm a deeply competitive, impatient, and insecure person, in case you haven't noticed. So I wrestle with this issue too. A good number of you are anticipating graduation in a few months and a release from studies and <laughs> what you think is a call into real ministry. And the rest of you are probably yearning for that date. You've spent, depending on what, you know, how you've been doing your studies, you've spent three or more years mining the riches of the Christian faith in biblical studies, theology, and our Christian tradition, and learning best practices for ministry. Now you're keen to get out and put all of that knowledge to good use. To prune the deadwood, plant new seeds, encourage new growth, revitalize the church, and so prove your worth to your fellow pastors, your professors perhaps, and your denominational leaders. Maybe in a few years you think, Kevin Vincent will interview you and film you so that you can share uh, your success story at convention or a conference. Well, huh? Okay, is Kevin here? <laughs> well, both God and Acadia Divinity College are concerned about the health of the church in our region and in our nation. We, now here at ADC, I'm not going to speak for God on this point, <laughs> believe in an, an informed clergy, partly because life is so busy, hectic even, that many people don't seem to have the personal time or the personal motivation to do the heavy work of faith development. So you've had the luxury, and I will say luxury, of studying so that you can impart that knowledge to others in perhaps smaller digestible bites. But that does not mean that you have all of the knowledge and wisdom and insight that resides in your congregation or in whatever ministry you're going to be called to. We all read scripture through a particular lens, through glass darkly, as I've read someone say. I have to acknowledge that I read scripture through an Anabaptist lens. So when I review the sweep of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, I see a consistent emphasis on the dangers of pride and the call to humility. In fact, it took considerable time for me to choose the texts that I wanted to use because scripture is so rich with this theme. And um, I'm going to be refer referencing a few of the books that I got on. Jesus calls us to a life of personal humility. And the Apostle Paul calls us to a life of humble leadership. 
I know you've heard that message in class, but you've also been challenged to develop your leadership skills so that you can provide strong, energetic, and dynamic leadership to churches who seem to be floundering, drifting, or maybe even dying. So you may feel as though you've received slightly mixed messages, this emphasis on humility, humble leadership, and this need for strong and dynamic leadership. So how does that play out in real life ministry? Well, I don't have the definitive answer, but I do have a few thoughts I'd like to share. Recently, I read a fascinating book by Dennis Oakham. It's called Dangerous Passions, Deadly Sins, Learning from the Psychology of Ancient Monks. Not the spirituality, but the psychology of uh, ancient monks. Uh, Oakham is an Anglican pastor who teaches at Fuller Theological Seminary and Azusa Pacific University. He introduced me to the wisdom of the early church writers, particularly Evagrius of Pontus and John Cassian, both of the 4th century, and Gregory the Great of the 5th century. And I was struck by the relevance to contemporary life in their deep understanding of human psychology. And Oakham's book helped me to understand the virtue of humility by looking at its opposite, the sin of pride. The ancients often used the term vainglory for pride, even though the two, and, the, and they use them often interchangeably, even though there are slightly different emphases as regards the object. It appears that pride has more of a vertical reference uh, dealing with our relationship to God. And so I hope you caught that in our opening song. While the sin of vainglory is more horizontal, dealing with our relationship to our fellow human beings. Unlike the classical philosophers, such as Aristotle, for instance, who made pride a virtue, the ancient Christian thinkers considered pride the cause of the most damaging fall for the soul, the queen of sins, and the root of all evils. I believe that we have now come full circle back to those pagan philosophers, not the Christian ones. And interestingly, the, sub uh, the chapter on vainglory in Oakham's book is subtitled, The Disease of Self-Esteemia. <laughs> For the past four decades, maybe five decades or so, so that would include all of us being influenced by this, we've been bombarded with a psychological notion that positive self-esteem is necessary for a happy, successful life. Parents and teachers are constantly admonished, admonished, admonished to praise children for any accomplishment, no matter how mundane. Now, those of you who've taken my discipleship course know how deeply I, and how critical I believe, that developing a sense of self-worth is to, in children is to their development as healthy individuals. However, in this case, as in many others, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. 
there is a growing body of research, a very solid research, that indicates that children with high self-esteem, not good self-esteem, but high self-esteem, are more aggressive and more narcissistic, fail to learn from their mistakes, and often opt to look smart and not risk failure. The dark side of high self-esteem or self-esteemia can be exhibited in elevating success over well-being, blaming others for one's shortcomings, overvaluing one's contributions, and then even the more negative uh, results such as bullying and aggression. The concept that we're all tainted by sin seems to have slipped out of our common consciousness. So I highly recommend another book for you. <laughs> it's an older book and one that my theology professor here recommended to me when I was grappling with this issue as I was uh, dealing or giving pastoral care to, to women who had been in abusive relationships and were, you know, had no self-worth. The Dilemma of Self-Esteem, The Cross and Christian Confidence. And that's by Joanna and Alistair McGrath. Uh, he, of course, a well-known theologian, she a psychologist. Basically, pride is based on comparison, whether it is wealth, power, status, or whatever makes you feel superior. Aquinas reminds us that the Latin word for pride is superbia, meaning arrogance, but also probably the, word, the, the root of our word superb. In academia, this might manifest itself in competition with others in one's field or trying to prove that one's interpretation is more uh, faithful or more believable than others. And believe me, I've heard about some of the knock them down drag them out fights that happen at SBL, but I think it can happen in more modest settings too. <laughs> In ministry, it might ma manifest itself in leading a more successful church than one's colleagues. Now, one student just this past year who led a very effective outreach program in her church shared with me in quite some distress that her pastor, her senior pastor, said to her, we're going to build the biggest, and insert the denomination name, church in Atlantic Canada and will use your program to build it. Now that sounds suspiciously like self-esteemia to me. What is the cure then for pride or vainglory? Cassian gives us a list of scripture passages commending humility to counter an equally substantive list of passages condemning pride. He insists that the perfection and purity we seek as Christians cannot be obtained other than through humility, the mistress and mother of all virtues, his phrase, especially of love, obedience, patience, and kindness. And I can think of no better list of virtues for a Christian leader than these. In very contemporary terms, Cassian and Gregory insist that humility requires an awareness of our true nature. 
That, in turn, requires a healthy self-examination and self-criticism that leads to an accurate self-assessment. Now, most of you here have had some practice in doing that at ADC, and I hope that the exercises you've engaged in, whether it's been in spiritual uh, disciplines class, in mentored ministry with your profiles of ministry, um, uh, pastoral care, and maybe others, that, that, that those exercises of self-examination have set a pattern for you instead of just being merely exercises that you have to tick off, you know, for your course. I'm not certainly advocating navel-gazing, which can lead to total self-absorption, just healthy self-examination. Paradoxically, rigorous self-examination or self-honesty allows us to find the true source of our worth outside of ourselves, knowing in our very being, and not just in our heads, that we've been created in the image of God and are so beloved by the Father that we are the beneficiaries of his son's sacrifice and adopted as his children free from the tyranny of finding our worth in comparison to anyone else. So, in this respect, the most humble are often the most secure and have the healthiest self-worth. Every Christian is called to work toward maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ, as Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. The work of self-awareness is the personal side of developing the mother of virtues in our Christian stature. For the Christian leader, it's even more imperative. No one can lead well without first setting the example. And in leading by example, character and integrity are essential. Regardless of what some leading evangelical pastors are spouting on the in their blogs and in space today. <laughs> As one Baptist blogger wrote recently, if the church claims that character in a leader, I'm not going to reference the leader he was referring to, is irrelevant to today's culture, then the church will be irrelevant too. Self-awareness should lead us to view others in the same light as also made in God's image and deserving of the same love, compassion, and grace that God has for us. I find it disturbing when pastors write off some members of their congregations, categorizing people you know, as for or against whatever the issue of the day happens to be or whatever the area of conflict happens to be. You're probably familiar with this statement, sometimes used by frustrated pastors. This church would be better off with a few good funerals. Now, I admit I have thought that in the past. <laughs> but underneath the joke is an attitude which Jesus addressed head on. We heard it today in his great sermon Jesus said, but I promise you that if you are angry with someone, you will have to stand trial. If you call someone a fool, you will be taken to court. And if you say that someone is worthless, you will be in the danger of the fires of hell. 
So, Jesus' warnings ring in my ears. And then sometimes people, they're professors uh, perhaps, or pastors who believe that they're indispensable, who believe that the church or the institution might collapse or at least, you know, languish without them. Now, don't misunderstand me. I believe that Christian leaders in whatever setting are expected to use their God-given brains and their training to exegete their ministry field and community, to put energy and muscle into the ministry to which they've been called, to do the hard work of listening and attending and tending to those who live there. But there is a difference between seeing oneself as a savior and recognizing that we are in this ministry of reconciliation together. One reflects vainglory and the other humility. Jesus also said, be wise as snakes and innocent, or in some translation, gentle as doves. I believe the ancient Christian writers I've referenced this morning got it right, that we need to come back to that realization ourselves. Humility is the mother of virtues. And here I have to correct the title of my sermon. In the press of getting the title to Shauna to send out, I conflated uh, two metaphors. It should be called the mother of virtues, not the queen of virtues. And it's very interesting how these ancient uh, Christian writers phrased that. I think they called pride the queen of virtues that sense of lording it over, right, in a queen. And humility was the mother of virtues, which gives birth to everything else, to all the other virtues. I think that's instructive to us. And also gratifying that he used feminine metaphors. <laughs> so, get back on track. Humility, okay, humility, keeps us in a right relationship to God and in a right relationship to our fellow human beings, which, in my experience, is often the more difficult. By cult, because, you know, God is sort of abstract. You know, it's very easy to, you know, feel humble in for, uh, before him, but face-to-face -face with our fellow sojourners, it's a little more challenging. So, in humility, we also keep ourselves uh, in right relationship with our fellows, recognizing that they too are made fully in the image of God and therefore deserve our respect even when we differ from them. Humble leadership will go a long way, not only in sustaining your ministry, but in strengthening it as you engage with all of those to whom God has called you. A number of us in this room studied under Dr. Oliver Osberg. And uh, do I see a few faces here? Uh, he was the professor of Christian education here in the 90s and maybe a little earlier. And he was famous for these punchy little sayings that, you know, some of us, like me, would scribble in our margins too, so we would always remember them. And we all had our favorites. So ask Anna or Glenn or Frank about their favorites afterwards. Mine 
and I've often, I often have to remind myself of this, was this one. It's amazing what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And I recommend it to you as a corrective to our culture today. Amen.